Well, good morning, church. Great to see you this morning. Help me out. Turn to somebody near you and say, you look incredible this morning. Glad you're here. Do that, would you? You look incredible this morning. Hey, can I just tell you, those who are joining from home, you look incredible. We are, no, we can't see you, but that's all right. We're glad you're with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Genesis chapter 6? That's where we're going to kind of spend our time this morning as we're kind of, we're running, we're coming around third base, headed for home in the series called In the Beginning, as we've been taking a look at these first chapters of the book of Genesis. It's been a good study for me and just been encouraged as I've been dwelling and spending time in the Word of God. Hopefully you have as well. I was 16, 17 maybe when my dad and I were back working on our pond. My dad had kind of fulfilled what he had talked about he was going to do ever since I was a little kid. When I was just going into junior high, um, we finally dug a pond on our family farm. I was so excited. I had been looking forward to it always wanting to have a pond. It was a place you could swim and, and have fun and fish. And it was just, it was, I think it was a dream for my dad too. We had an issue at the pond though, is the first several years that we had it, it kept seeping water. It kept losing its water level. And so it was always well below where it should be. And we discovered that it was seeping through a, a dirt mound that was retaining the wall. And so we had to put in kind of a concrete reinforcement to keep it from being able to seep out, had an overflow uh, tube in it and such. In fact, the guy who did it for us, guy's name was Shorty Hostetler. That was, I don't know what his real name is, but Shorty Hostetler. I just chatted with him two weeks ago, and he's, he told me he did that. I, I didn't realize it was him that had done that work. And at the end of that work, we, they had these, they had these um, forms that they had put up. They basically put up a bunch of plywood to pour in this concrete. It was a lot of concrete that it took. And then it was up to us later on to take all those forms out. And so we left it up for quite some time. Finally, my dad said, it's time for us to get this out. So we went back and I was trying to help him to do this. And I I will be honest with you, I was probably during that time in my life as a teenager when I was trying to prove to my dad that I wasn't a complete lunkhead. Uh, It just seemed like I I never could quite do things quite right. And and, uh, I was trying to prove to him that I was becoming a man and I was growing into my body a little bit or my body was getting muscles. And I was kind of at that point where I had all kinds of energy and so my dad said, hey, can you take a hammer and can you see if you can get down there and beat this thing out to try to break it loose from the concrete? I said, I can do that. And so I get down there and I take a hammer and I, I go in there to basically swing with everything that I have. And I went back and pop, hit my dad right in the forehead. 
And my dad, you ever had those times when you just wish your parents would have yelled at you? My dad was a yeller. He, was, he would have had a very loud voice, but my dad just looked at me like this and shook his head, and he said, why did you do that? Because <laughs> I'm a lunkhead, that's why. <laughs> why did you do that? That is a great question. Why do I do the things that I do? That was to try to prove that I was able to work right alongside my dad and probably prove that I couldn't really yet. Tried to prove I wasn't a lunkhead and it probably showed I was a lunkhead, but why do we do the things we do, the things we do that either cause pain to others or hurt us or, or that we try to walk with the Lord and then when we're walking with the Lord, we don't walk with the Lord. Paul says it this way, why is it that the very things that I want to do, I don't do and the very things I don't want to do are the very things I end up doing? Well, that's kind of the heartbeat of this passage this morning. As we focus in on Noah and the story of Noah, there are so many areas we could focus in on, the specifics of the story. And I will tell you that, to me, one of the things that is so unique about the story of Noah is just how specific God's Word is on the size of the ark and all the, even the timing of everything that took place but I want to read through this and then I'm going to focus in on a couple of things this morning. It begins in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When men began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Now, some people immediately want to stop right there and say, okay, who are the sons of God? And there's basically two understandings of that passage, that the sons of God married the daughters of men, and some would say, well, those are, those are angels. Those are fallen angels that, that um, married women, and that's how we came about with the heroes of old. Um, and there are many founding fathers that actually held that position. I, I tend to lean to the other one. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that when we come into our kingdom, when we come into eternity, we're going to be like the angels in heaven which are not given to marriage. Jesus said angels don't marry. They, they aren't sexual beings. And so Jesus says that's how we're going to be in heaven. And so I just kind of use him as my template on that whole thing. And another understanding of that passage, which to me is far more applicable, is that those that were of the lineage of Seth, those who were f part of the covenant of God, were called the sons of God. So what he indicates is that when the, the followers of God or those who were part of the covenant of God intermarried with those who weren't, because they saw that they were beautiful, it really speaks a lot to whether or not we're going to have the Lord be at the center of our, our, our choices or not. But I'm not going to argue about that this morning. Those are two understandings. Then he said, When the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were in the earth that day and also afterward. And when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and they had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil at all times. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Now, if those last two verses don't, cause you pause. I, I don't know what other verses in Scripture could. 
The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil at all times. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, and God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted its ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. Now he gets into the specificity of the size of the ark. In fact, there are some who would hold that this is a kind of a mythological story. The difference between this and and many others is the specifics of it. We see a very specific design. We see great attention to detail. We see great attention to the detail of how old Noah was when he got on the ark, how how old he was when he got off the ark. We see the absolute specific days that everything lasted. This is not not intended to be symbolism. This is a specific story in Scripture. And while we could focus on the kind of the, the kind of the the concepts of the angels, and we could talk about different aspects of this story. The one that sticks out to me is that how is it that only within just a few thousand years after God has looked at humanity and said it is very good and I have designed them in my, in my own image, how is it that now every inclination of man's heart is only wicked at all times and God is actually grieved? He went from, he went from it is good to... I'm grieved. And when you look at the story of Noah, there are some things that begin to just jump out at me about Noah's life. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to spend the majority of my time on number three today, but the other three are really important. So I'm going to give them to you this morning. The first observation about Noah is that Noah walked contrary to culture and it really honored God. Now, I'm not saying that living countercultural culture is always honoring to God because if a culture is looking toward the Lord, that would obviously honor the Lord to live toward that culture. But what's interesting is that he was someone who distinguished himself from other individuals by how he lived his life. In fact, you'll notice it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love that word favor. I would always want to stay and live in God's favor. I'd rather have God's favor than anything else in the world. It's just simply his wind carrying me along, his blessing carrying me along. And it says, this is the account of Noah, he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. His pulpit wasn't in a church. His pulpit wasn't by standing up and even judging humanity and saying how wicked they had become, although a lot of the stories you read about when you're growing up kind of shows him out there telling everybody, beware, beware, beware. We don't really see that that much in Scripture. We simply see that God said, I want you to lead your family. I want you to build an ark. I want your faithfulness to be a testimony. I want you to be right in a culture that is turned toward wrong. And in so doing you're going to honor me in a tremendous way. In fact, that's kind of what you notice in Scripture, isn't it? All those heroes, Joseph, 
Daniel, the disciples, Jesus, they're individuals who when culture is sliding one direction, they're willing to walk a different direction. And it honors God. In fact, you don't even have to say anything. You don't have to judge everyone just simply by living that life. It stands contrary. Enoch, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Chelsea brought the word of God, Enoch was a man that when there was a spiral that was taking place in her humanity, he showed that you could live contrary to the slide, that you can break the cycle. If you feel like your family has a, has a cycle in it, that it's just the way it's going to be, you can stand against the, the spiral of your family of origin and you can stand culture or counter to the culture and it honors the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11 says it this way, by faith when warned about things yet not, to, not seen, in holy fear, Noah built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He didn't condemn the world with his words. It was just simply by living in a way that honored the Lord. It proved you could stand counterculture. That is a challenge to me, if not to everybody else. Phil, are you willing to stand counterculture? Are you willing to live differently. And I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about holier than thou. I'm not talking about making the Bible say things the Bible doesn't say. It's just simply that when Scripture identifies something very clearly that God wants me to stand for, are you willing to stand even if culture says that's not what we're going to embrace? The second thing I noticed is a great encouragement to me because Noah's faith had a huge impact on his own family. In fact, I would dare say it rescued his family. It's interesting, it says he had three sons. He had Shem, he had Japheth, and he had Ham. Now what's interesting is that these boys, so to speak, by the time that the flood came, were somewhere in their 90s. Doesn't sound like a teenage boy, does it? Got to kind of do the math. You go into Genesis a little bit after what Genesis 11, it kind of tells you how old uh, Shem was when the flood took place and then you got to go back two years from that and you got to do a little bit of math he was a hundred years old when the flood was over so we know he was around 98 when the flood began and, and and so we know that we know that if you do kind of the calculations they were all in their 90s when they boarded the ark of course they didn't have any children yet either but they were married all these conversations, right? We're all having these questions. And wait, how can it be so old that, I mean, there's very few people in our church who would even be in their 90s. And yet, it seems like somehow with the, with the flood, there is a diminishment of how long humanity lived. We know that God was limiting them. We saw that they lived hundreds of years prior to the flood. And then we see this gradual decline until Dan, uh, David says in the Psalms that the years of a man are somewhere between 70, maybe 80 if his strength holds out. And so we see this continual realignment of how old humanity can live toward but what we probably need to really look at is is that these were three boys who were now men who were willing to follow their their dad into an ark he had enough of an impact in their life his life in front of them meant enough to them that it actually impacted them that they were willing to get in to, to look foolish in doing so and to bring their wives in as well. Scripture says eight people in all were saved. 
And I know that for a lot of parents that are here and grandparents that are here, there's this heartbreak because you see your adult children especially that begin to take steps away from what you taught them. And you thought that you led them in a right way and you thought that you set all the examples and you really were earnest in your love of Jesus Christ and you see them making decisions that are contrary to the way that they were raised. And it brings such a heartache. And yet I just believe with all my heart that God honors those who honor Him and that my life even after I'm gone, my prayers certainly after I'm gone are going to continue to have an impact into my family and my family's family long after I'm gone that as I honor the Lord, the Lord knows how to honor my prayer and my faith. This last week I had several funerals. But one of the funerals was to a 79-year-old man who had passed away and a couple of his sons shared at his funeral. And I was struck because one of them got up, he's from the military, and he got up and he said, I wanna credit, he read a passage of scripture and he says, I wanna credit everything that I know about Christ, everything that I know that has set my life on a journey, I credit to my dad because I would ask him questions about heaven and I would ask my dad questions about Jesus when I was a kid and he set me on a path that everything in my life that honors the Lord has come because my dad invested in me. The other son got up and he said, I have lived completely different than the way my dad taught me to live. But anything that is good in my life that is right, I credit to him. One was obviously walking one path. The other self-reportedly was walking a different path. But it's interesting, both of them credited the impact that a life that was lived made on their life. Parents and grandparents don't give up. I know you get discouraged, but the Lord is still working in lives and the end of the story has not yet been written. But the one that impacts me the most is number three. That while Noah was a really good man, he still had a really big problem. And we see it in chapter eight. Now, understand the flood takes place. We see all of the details of the flood that takes place. We see that, that all the evilness has really been wiped out. You see all of those who, I mean, the only people that are left are Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives. Literally, everyone in this room's descendancy comes from Noah. And so as you go into chapter 8, you'll notice that it says in verse 20 that one of the very first things that Noah did when he came off the ark was to worship the Lord. And it said, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, and he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And so not only is this guy such a good guy that he lives rightly in a crooked world, but he's also a guy who worships the Lord. He's a sincere follower of the Lord. And look what it says. He even sacrifices to the Lord. And verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil 
from childhood. By the way, never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then the Lord blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Here's my problem. Verse 21. If all the bad people have been wiped out, why did God say every inclination of their heart was only wicked from childhood? Answer. Because every inclination of Noah's heart was still bent away from God. Their inclinations. We don't just have to be rescued from the things that we do. We have to be rescued from the thing that we are. And from the sin of Adam and Eve, there was a bent, there was a twisting in the DNA, the nature of humanity. Scripture says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us our own way, but God has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. There is no one, it says our righteousness, it's like filthy rags, that's what Isaiah says. And he's not saying that God doesn't appreciate our efforts, it's just that no matter all the right things that we do on the, right, on the outside, we still have the brokenness on the inside. And God wants to do an inward out work. It's not an outward in. It's not about, it's not faking it until you're making it. It's allowing God to make us who he wants us to be so that we can live who God wants us to live as. That's why I always say, none of us are ever gonna be worthy in our own strength to ever get into heaven. It's not because I'm negative, it's not because I'm kind of a downer, it's just simply recognizing that it's not just the stuff I do. It's who I am. Romans chapter seven, I referred to it earlier, I would encourage you, it's in your notes, if you'd like to look at it, but if you don't want to look at it, you can just listen to it or you can go in your own Bibles or use your app or whatever you're going to use. But this is, what, this is what Paul says. Now, Paul is an apostle. Paul, is a, he's been radically changed by Jesus Christ. He is, he, this guy saw the light, literally, and it changed his life. And he spent his entire life telling others about Jesus, the good news. And look what Paul says. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer myself, but it's sin living in me. What he says in his passage is, why is it that the very thing that I want to do, I don't do, and the very thing I don't want to do is the very thing I end up doing? Any of you ever identify with that? Man, I do. Been there, done that. I should be wearing the T-shirt this morning. And then he says this. This is what's interesting. He says, so I find, verse 21, this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the, of, the, of the law of sin at work within my members. Now, get this. He's frustrated. What a wretched man am I? 
Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free. I love that phrase. Set me free. Say it with me, would you? Set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, we could probably spend weeks dissecting that passage theologians have spent years writing volumes on that passage but notice what he says this whole thing of holiness always begins with an inward rescue before there's an outward rescue before there's ever an outward change in our life there has to be an inward rescue that takes place Noah you see the problem Okay, you see the problem. Every inclination is sin. We don't, we don't even have that ability to reach out to the Lord. Our natural inclination will lead us away from the Lord. But God's Spirit working in our lives does this incredible work by where there's an inward work that shows itself outward in our lives. Uh, John Piper said it this way. John Piper and I don't agree on a whole lot of things, but, but I love what he says. It is, the, it is the enabled spirit or the empowered will that God's spirit comes alongside of us. And even when we don't know how to believe, he enables us to even be able to cooperate with the Spirit of God. See, the Holy Spirit begins to work in our life. I always, call, I always call salvation kind of a divine partnership. God's Spirit works in my life and then we cooperate with His Spirit working in our life. And what I love in this passage is that faith is realizing I can't rescue myself. I've got to have another and that other to rescue me is Jesus Christ. In fact, let me put it this way. Um, a few years ago, actually a number of years ago, I began to realize everything in the Old Testament is really just pointing forward to what we receive in Christ. If you read the Old Testament and you just simply understand it through the lens of everything that we find in Christ, things begin to come alive. The Old Testament sacrifices, all that, starts to make sense because you realize Christ fulfills them all. Get this. If the Old Testament story of Noah is pointing forward as well, then if Noah needed an ark to rescue him, we need an ark to rescue us, and our ark is Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm under the law, but the law of the Spirit of life sets me free. I have a new law that has taken over. Now, I am not, uh, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist in any way. I'm a communicator. And so when I do this, those of you who are physicists and you understand this stuff, you're going to just kind of laugh at me a little bit. But just remember, I I'm trying to communicate something. But how many of you have heard of Newton? Newton's laws, right? He discovered or this whole idea of gravity. In fact, I know that because cartoons, when I was a kid, an apple fell on his head. No, didn't you learn everything from cartoons? I learned everything I know in life from cartoons and Gilligan's Island. That's the only two places I've learned everything I understand about science. It's actually a bigger concept than this, but it's the law of gravitation. There's this whole thing that goes with it that has to do with the, the size and inertia and all these things. But the basic essence is this. Uh, what goes up comes down. Right? We understand that? Gravi gravity? 
Somebody jumps out of the balcony, they're going to go down. They're not going to go up, they're going to go down. There's another law that actually Newton has something to do with. We would probably talk about it as the law of aerodynamics. The law of aerodynamics actually has three other laws, but, but it's this whole idea that if you have enough thrust and enough what was Newton's third law? Something like every action has to have an equal reaction. That if you have thrust and you have velocity and you have drag and then you have this push against wings that go down, you can create an upward thrust whereby now you have, under the law of gravity, you have a new law that takes over. It's the law of aerodynamics and that's how flight is possible. That's a, in a nutshell, but if you've ever seen a plane and how many tons an airplane is, there is no reason an airplane should, li- should possibly be able to lift off of the ground except that there's a new law that takes over. And whenever I read this passage, Paul says, I am, I am bound by the law of sin. I, I am taken over by the law of gravity. It drags me down. But the law of aerodynamics, the law of the spirit of life has set me free because even though that law of gravity is still in effect, a new law, which is more powerful, takes over and enables flight to take place. Are you tracking with me at all? Oh, wretched man am I, who can rescue me? from this law of gravity, sin and death. Praise be to God. Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean I've stopped being a person. In fact, what I've found is that if a plane stops flying in the reality of the law of aerodynamics, it will plunge. We can still plunge That's why every day, Scripture says, every day be filled with the Spirit, be yielded to the Spirit, be enabled by the Spirit. Why? Because I every day need His grace working in my life to continue to allow me to live the life that God wants me to live by His power and His grace. There is now therefore no condemnation. I love that phrase. I did a lot of condemning in my life, but now there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He's our rescuer. We got a huge problem. You don't, you don't make this world better by getting rid of bad people. It just seems like there's always more bad to come. We see transformation take place in our community, our life, and our church by a new law taking over. The spirit of life. The fourth thing, and we don't have a whole lot of time to cover it, but we'll come back in a future day to cover it. Noah's rescue began with a promise. It's found in verse 18. We didn't read it in the first pass-through, but I want to go ahead and make sure that you see it because you'll notice that he says you need an ark, and this is how you're going to build an ark. Then in verse 18, chapter 6, he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife 
and your son's wives with you. The nature of a covenant we want to study someday. It's, it's tremendous truths. But essentially, a covenant is a promise that when God makes it to us is backed up by him and his character. People make a covenant. God serves as the witness. When God makes a covenant with us, he bears testimony by his own character and witness. It can't be broken. God's rescue always begins with a promise. And when you fast forward into the New Testament, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, he takes the wine and he says, and this is my new covenant, my blood, for the forgiveness of your sins. We can know what it is to be forgiven. We can know what it is to have an inward rescue that shows in our lives outwardly. We can know what it is to have a new law in effect through the promise of Jesus Christ, my blood shed for you. It always begins with God's promise to us. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me in this morning. You're saying, why is it that I do the things I don't want to do? Why is it that it feels like I take a step forward and two steps backward? Why, why is it that it feels like no matter how hard I try, the harder I try, the further I fall short? I'm going to tell you, it was that very essence that led me to Christ when I became so frustrated. I just said, Lord... I absolutely can't do this. If you want to rescue me, you're going to have to figure out how to do it. And I, it didn't happen that night, but boy, that was the heartbeat that was necessary for God to work in my life. Why am I so angry? Why do I do these things that hurt others? Why do I do these things that hurt my own life? Why do these things... Jesus, I, I don't, I'm, I'm so tired. It's not that I don't want to try, but I just, I'm so tired of trying. And this morning I'm trusting. I need you to do for me and in me what I could never do for myself. I'm so tired of fighting you all the time. I mean, you may have been a believer for years and you're still praying this prayer because there's a war that is waging for the will, for our full surrender. And God says, until you let go of the reins and you fully surrender to me, this is a cycle that'll just keep taking place. And this morning, you're just saying, I surrender. Whatever it is that you want in my life, whatever it is you want to do in my life, whatever it is you want to do in my relationships, whatever it is you want to do in my character, whatever it is you want to do in my emotions, whatever it is, Lord Jesus, I, I know I desperately need you. Rescue me, I pray.
And I'm going to trust your word that says, he who began a good work in you will continue it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Keep doing the work as I keep surrendering. Change me from the inside out, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.